You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jordan Lofthouse. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. I'm also a program director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. This episode today is part of a mini-series of the Hike Program podcast on economics and the environment. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting with my colleague and co-author, Bobby Herzberg. In today's conversation, Bobby and I will be talking about the intersection of political economy, institutional analysis, and environmentalism. But first, I want to give Bobby a proper introduction. Dr. Bobby Herzberg is a distinguished senior fellow in the Hayek program and an emerita associate professor at Utah State University. Her research and teaching focus on the Bloomington School, political economy, public choice, and public policy. She's a past president and current board member of the Public Choice Society, the Mont Pelerin Society, and serves as an advisor to the Rising Tide Foundation. She previously held faculty and administrative positions at Utah State University, Indiana University Bloomington, and the John Templeton Foundation. So with that, thanks for talking with me today, Bobby. It's a pleasure, always. To jump into our conversation, um, a lot of your previous work and what you've taught about and done research on is the idea of polycentricity, which is a word that a lot of people may not be familiar with. It's not a word that just floats out, you know, in normal people speak. Could you describe how you conceptualize polycentricity and why it's socially useful in kind of a general sense? Why should we care about what polycentricity even is? Uh, thanks for asking. And you're right. It certainly is never uh, one of those very common words. It is around the Mercatus Center and in our programs, uh, but beyond those walls, it's uh, not used in common parlance. And in fact, the key to that is when you put it into any of your word programs or Google, they think you've misspelled something. So that's always a sign that this is not a common word. Polycentricity for me is the way that the world is organized. We tend to think in terms uh, that are much simpler and more uh, regulated or more regular, usually either central authority, top-heavy hierarchical kinds of relationships where power flows from the top and is delegated down, or in decentralized arenas or confederational arenas where the power resides at the in the smaller or more localized uh, levels and then is aggregated up. Polycentricity is neither of those, and it's both of those. It has components where there are multiple centers, as you might anticipate, and uh, a variety of different actors, both in governing and government type of arrangements, but also governing through private organizations and civil society, and also in businesses and through private property rights, uh, where they can be important players in this. And all of those centers of power 
act as a check one on another. Uh, They allow us to organize to do things socially at the appropriate level given the task that we want to achieve. So, for example, if it's garbage uh, services, you don't want to have a federal policy of garbage service uh, because garbage service is a fairly localized thing and may vary depending on the community that you're in, depending on access to things like landfill, um, the how spread out a community is, if it's uh, very urban and, and contained or it's very spread out. And so polycentricity permits us to deal with the variety of social activities that we're interested in pursuing together, but to do it with sort of the least cumbersome bureaucracy that is possible. But when we're dealing with a big issue that overlaps across many jurisdictions and many different uh, groups and individuals, we may need to take that decision situation to a higher level where the authority can operate across all of us. And so when we're talking about environmental things, for example, these are areas where frequently we talk about the externality effects associated with environmental activities. I may be keeping everything clean and doing everything appropriately, but my neighbor may not. And if my neighbor is polluting in some way, I may be impacted by that pollution. And that might be the neighboring state, or it could be a neighboring country or someone from a very great distance. But to the extent that the pollution or the externality that is created, the dirty water, the used up fishery, whatever that common circumstance might be, that externality means that if we're going to resolve it, we need to bring all of the relevant parties together in some way. And polycentricity allows us to do that in a way that's still effective for the people that are trying to pursue this social end, but manageable in the sense that it, it doesn't get out of hand. It doesn't get to such a huge level uh, that there's really no potential enforcement mechanism uh, that's going to bind us together. And there's not even enough shared information for us uh, to work together. So polycentricity is actually, I think, the way the world works. And so it's an institutional theory that permits us uh, to be closer to that reality. Yeah. And so I think that's one thing in, you know, conversations I've had with you or our colleagues or the fellows that we work with is one thing that I find is a misconception is that there are lots of alternatives to polycentricity, which really there's only one alternative to polycentricity, which is monocentricity. And so it's not really an alternative. It's a spectrum. You can have more to less monocentric to polycentric, like a purely monocentric organizational structure would be like the world's most perfect bureaucracy. Like the head honcho chooses something and they at level A tells level B and level B tells level C and level C tells level D kind of a thing. Whereas, I mean, that might be really efficient in some ways, but in other ways that might be totally screwed up. And so one of the benefits of polycentricity is 
it can often better align incentives and have better knowledge related kind of epistemic properties where you get different kinds of knowledge in the system. Absolutely. That's been that's been my experience too is when we talk about this with everyone uh with our fellows and with colleagues uh they really do want to say well but what about just going fully private um and taking it all down to individual level or what about taking it all the way to the center and having a really efficient way of planned and good delegation with good incentives uh, that might structure that. The challenge, of course, is getting all of those institutional features right when you focus or concentrate that power. And by having a polycentric system, one of the real advantages in my mind is if, in fact, you are participating or feel you have impact on the decision making because it is closer to the level at which the you perceive the problem then you're far more likely to buy into that as a as a policy and to conform with the agreements uh, that are reached where as if you have a very monocentric system then the only mechanism that you have for ensuring that those lower levels that you mentioned are actually getting it right and carrying it out as it was intended at the center is force. It's authority. And that's not a very good system because force is very costly in many ways in society. And uh, it's almost impossible to imagine, besides the most sort of authoritarian uh, governments that we've observed over the years, them being able to carry that out. And even in those super authoritarian uh, regimes, while it's very dangerous to challenge that authority, we do see people stepping up and actually challenging it. And eventually, someone else will challenge it to the point where we get those protests in the street. We get that coup. We get a, a challenge uh, that actually removes that central power. So even in those where they operate with significant force, it's very hard to hold a monocentric together if, in fact, the people who are being governed do not buy in to the type of policy that's uh, being pursued. Yeah, and this reminds me, too, in this discussion of polycentricity, obviously, we're talking about a lot of the work that comes from you know, ideas from Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom. And one thing that I like to emphasize that I think is often overlooked in discussions of polycentricity is you can't divorce discussions of polycentricity from kind of the core of the Bloomington School, what the Ostroms were all about, which is institutional analysis. One can imagine a polycentric system that is set up like the institutional setup of that polycentric system has really bad incentives and really bad epistemic properties. And you can imagine a better monocentric system, like you would get better performance than that poor polycentric system. But that monocentric system is also going to be limited in several ways. So if you have a well-instituted polycentric system with checks and balances that allows different types of knowledge to flow to different types of people and decision makers, that's kind of the best of all worlds. You get the best epistemics and incentives. 
I think it's funny because the Ostroms talked about not thinking in terms of panaceas, but then oftentimes people just say, oh, slap some polycentricity on it and then it'll fix it. It's like, well, not necessarily. It could get worse. You have to really think about the institutional framework in which it's a polycentric system is operating. I don't know if you have a response to that, but. I would fully agree. It's all about the institutions and the design. And and when you have a polycentric system and you're doing a lot of things more locally, then you have to concern yourself with how do you contract up? How do you deal with problems that are bigger? Um, do we have the capacity? Do we have the institutional structure that permits us to gather in large groups when a large group is necessary. And I think that that is that recognition that it's all about the institutions. And the Ostroms uh, spent a lot of time looking at federalism, especially the U.S. model of federalism, as an example of a polycentric system that worked reasonably well, where the national government protected rights and did certain broad-based, generally held concerns. And then most of the day-to-day kinds of governing activities took place more locally within the states. And then people could also vote with their feet. And I think that's another component of this. If The more you move to monocentric types of approaches, the less exit becomes a viable option. So if things are done entirely at the national level around the world, then the only way to sort of change if, in fact, that set of policies and approaches are not serving you and your family's interest is to change countries, which can be very difficult. You may not be able to change countries because you have to find another country that wants to let you in. And in the model of U.S. federalism, that's how they sort of thought about it from the get-go, is most things would be done at these local state levels, but we would come together for broad shared interests, such as the protection of the United States, defense against foreign threats. And so those kinds of broad-based where working together really made sense, we could do it, but that was that was because those were shared interests. Today, it's a little bit different where a lot of things are done nationally without necessarily having that same buy-in, especially as we see right now with quite a divided political arena. It's harder to imagine that many policies that could get universal uh, or large majority support in favor of them. Um, We're just a little bit too divided. So if we keep those kinds of issues where people differ more localized, then it's a lot easier to live together. Sort of the the concept that our colleague has developed, Paul Alagica, modus vivendi, live and let live. The logic of we don't want to do that policy necessarily, but we're okay if Utah wants to do it uh, that way and it works for the people of Utah. Yeah, and that's why I think another misconception that often comes up in discussions of polycentricity with people who aren't you know, in the thick of it is they think it is synonymous with decentralization, which is not correct. 
there will be decentralized elements in a polycentric system. But like you were just describing is you have divisions all over the place. So if we're talking about like formal government, like the, the federalist system of the United States, yeah, you have, you have the national level, you have state levels, you have county levels, you have cities, but you also have in each of those levels divided horizontally between judiciary, legislative and executive. But it gets even more complicated than that because you can think of kind of these mid-sized problems that are bigger than states, but smaller than the nation. So no, I mean, I've lived out West for most of my life. I know you're living in Utah. So like the Colorado River Compact, that is an agreement between seven states out West that the Colorado River and its tributaries come into. So it makes sense. It's like, well, that's a problem bigger than one state. So if like Arizona just decided to do something, well, Arizona's choices are going to have effects on say like California or Nevada. Whereas it seems a bit weird to have it be solely federal, because like, why would Vermont or Delaware have any say over how the Colorado River is managed? Seems a bit weird. So at least we can like, like we're talking about the contracting up is we can find the correct scale of governance to meet whatever the scale of the problem is. Exactly. And I think this is one of the Ostrom's great contributions is this idea of self-governing and what those regional PACs emerge out of is a desire by all of those states to solve what is a common problem. If they don't come together in that pact, they're not bound by it. And only then, you know, if a federal um, action can enforce it, but it's hard for federal actions to get agreement again, when you have this wide diversity of interests and perspectives and cultures uh, that have emerged over the years. And so you don't need to get everybody to go ahead and agree to and get something that each of the states agrees to be bound by. And then the citizens of those states or the residents of those states do have to comply with the agreement that has been reached across those seven states. But the great part about the U.S. federal system is If you don't like that, you can find another state where you think they're not bound by whatever those rules were. If that matters enough to you, then you can vote with your feet. And we saw during COVID, for example, lots of people voted with their feet and moved to states that reflected better their vision of the appropriate response to COVID, whether it was to move to a state that was more restrictive because you thought people were not taking it as seriously in your state, or to move to a state where, in fact, it was a little bit more relaxed or fewer regulations on these matters, or the schools opened uh, more quickly, those states attracted a lot of people who felt like their state was not reflecting Uh, their core interests. And for me, that logic is how do we peacefully deal with the diversity that people bring to some of these critical policy areas? We can either try and get everyone to comply with one vision, uh, which can be very high conflict, or we can allow people to sort of sort themselves into communities that more accurately reflect their their differences, whether it's having lots of restrictions, so people that join 
homeowners associations that are very restrictive and move to states with high regulatory levels for things like zoning and building can do so. And people that don't want to be bound by that can find areas still where that's not going to be the case. And so, again, that allows for both to be able to exercise uh, their interests and to work socially together, but socially around a shared vision of the way things should be done. And the things that move to the top level tend to be the most fundamental, like natural rights kinds of arguments, like the right now with uh, freedom of speech. One of the you know, First Amendment freedoms we are debating in different states and in different communities and in business as well. So these other centers of authority that people join through their economic actions and come together like you know, Google or uh, YouTube or any of the uh, ways that we communicate in terms of the internet, by making those sort of fundamental rights at the highest level, there's sort of fundamental agreement that maybe that is a right that we can't allow lower levels of government to try to change because it is so fundamental to all of the other ways in which we govern to be able to freely speak and challenge the government. Not to be able to challenge everyone, obviously, but in the public square where we're dealing with policy, that idea that it is very important. And so when government starts to put its thumb on that, then you're going to get that kind of pushback. That's the kind of individual right that only a fairly high level could probably address appropriately. Yeah, that was great. I wanted to jump back a little while ago. You were talking about, well, kind of implicit through this whole thing is this idea of voting with your feet and moving to a place that... Now, I have heard pushback in the past, which I partially agree with, is for a lot of people that is prohibitively costly. And so that becomes very difficult as some place might not be your preferences at all, but you're in the minority, the political minority or whatever. And so voting with your feet is just not a viable option, maybe in the short term, maybe in the long term, but not the short term. And so one thing that I, well, that we've written on that I think can help answer that is this idea of meta polycentric governance. And so, I mean, what does that mean? It's a polycentric system made up of polycentric systems. So you have government, which is polycentric. You have markets, which are also polycentric because you have, you know, multiple firms competing against one another while also cooperating with others. And then you have civil society, which is made up of churches and civic groups and clubs and all sorts of things like that. And that's obviously polycentric too, because there's a whole diversity of different groups at different scales, some competing, some cooperating with one another. And so I think that's one way to think about uh, this voting with your feet dilemma when it may not be possible for a lot of people is I, I'm just thinking about like the the idea of the pandemic. Like even if somebody was really afraid of COVID, if their job was deemed unessential and they don't have a livelihood, you know, they might be really hurting and they're like, I wish I could move to another state where I could work, but I can't. So what do I do now? 
and I think sort of this metapolycentric idea comes in is it's great that we have other entities that people can turn to for goods or services, for alternative forms of governance, for mutual aid, you know, for a hundred different things. And so what we don't want is just one source. And if that one source fails, then we're toast. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that completely. That, And that's why I use the ones of our fundamental rights, because I think that fundamental rights and some of the things you've mentioned sort of fall into those categories is you can't deny me the right maybe to work or whatever. I can't move because I've been denied the right to work. But as long as I'm here, I won't be able to work. So, you know, life is full of trade-offs, obviously. And my argument with voting with your feet is what's the alternative? I always think it's useful to look at comparative institutional because there's no costless way of organizing and self-governing. Every every time we come together socially and agree to be bound by some agreements, even if it's just in a family, we're going to face things where we are not in the ruling coalition and uh, things will be imposed on us. And so the question is, what are the trade-offs that I gain relative to what I have to give up in order to do that? And with moving or voting with your feet, for me, that's always the better option if, in fact, it's available and there's meaningful choice, because the alternative to that is guaranteeing that everybody has what they need, all that they need. And we can't, we can't do that. We don't seem to be able to allow everyone to have what they uh, want in terms of education or in terms of health or in terms of environmental considerations or whatever. And as a result, because they differ on them. So not everybody can get their way. And so in that case, what's the more costly? Is it to stay there and be bound by rules that you find uh, oppressive? Or is it to find a way to move? And which is the more costly way? And we do have mechanisms whether they are civil society mechanisms that might challenge. The courts are obviously a critical way that when we are dealing with these more fundamental rights that we've mentioned, that's one way that you can challenge. But those are all very costly too. And so that's one of the real challenges that we face is voting with your feet is often the least costly of the alternatives that people are facing, even though it is a costly consideration. Moving to another state, especially if you're not working in the state you're in, was always the mechanism that people used, certainly before the New Deal and uh, the rise of a lot of welfare policies. It was the only option people had if, in fact, they were to lose their job, was to find another community to move to find a, a job in in another place. And so I think that in that regard, even though voting with your feet is costly, it oftentimes is the least of the of the costly options that one faces. And it does allow us to sort. We do sort based on being around people that seem to share our own vision, 
which then keeps conflict within communities lower than it might be if we had every community be a little microcosm of the diversity of interests that exist in, in the nation as a whole. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think even if we just look, I know, I mean, we're both Americans, so we know a lot of American examples, but looking at American history, Americans throughout the history of the United States have been very, very mobile. And it's often small, usually not very wealthy minority groups that often move en masse to a different place. Different religious groups, different racial minority groups have had huge you know, migrations around the country. And then even today, you know, just like in my circle of friends, very few people live in the state that we grew up in. Like everyone's moved everywhere. I think it's uh, for, you know, a hundred different reasons. Yes, we are very mobile. Although we are the least mobile we've ever been, even though it's cheaper to move now than it ever has been because it's, you know, to transportation and other means of moving um, are just much more accessible than, for example, the pioneers and others of, of earlier time. And yet we're less mobile. And so one of the things that we sometimes get caught in is with the rise of the welfare state, which was intended to sort of offset some of these high costs that people have in, in living with the rules that exist and and to trying to live a good quality life. Um, as we expand the welfare state, it makes it more viable for people to comply with the zoning rules and all the rest of it to have the kind of housing uh, that might exist. But it doesn't take it away altogether. And it may tie you to that place longer than it makes sense economically. It might be better for people to move to the state where there's a lot of growth and a lot of new employment, but you're tied to the state where you're receiving benefits and you can at least continue to survive. And so I think voting with your feet gets a bit of that uh, pushback that the more we try and solve that by making it, creating more opportunities and programs uh, for people, we also then tie them to those. And to the extent they vary by community, it, it might be more difficult. All we need to sort of look at to realize that people of, of low means in terms of economic wherewithal can make very costly and, and difficult moves is to look at the immigration issue today in the United States and people who are making that move because of economic need and maybe other needs and concerns and problems that they face in their, in their own country uh, are making huge moves to come to the United States for those opportunities and for, for major change. And that, I think, was our pattern for most of our history. And so we're maybe just a little too comfortable now. And so we want the world to change to us as opposed to looking for where the fit is better. And so I don't think we get as much voting with their feet as we once had, at least among populations that have been here for a while. Yeah. 
now that we've, we've been talking for a while now about polycentricity in like a general sense, I want to turn now to a bit more of an environmental lean. And uh, you and I recently wrote a paper on polycentricity and climate change, building on a paper that Eleanor Ostrom had written maybe 10 or maybe 15-ish years ago, something like that. We describe a number of different benefits of a polycentric approach to coping with climate change. And I can kind of run through, we we go through, we talk about six different things. There's competition, which we've already talked about, which involves voting with your feet. There's also interjurisdictional cooperation, which we've kind of talked about. You can have different ones coming together. There's legitimacy and co-production. When people are involved in making the rules, they actually help monitor and enforce those rules as opposed to when they feel like rules have been foisted upon them by an outsider, they might either ignore them or sometimes actively subvert those type of things. There's experimentation and mutual learning, which we haven't really touched upon yet, but you can actually have a bunch of different places trying different approaches at the same time. Some work, some don't work as well. They can all learn from each other and tweak according to their circumstances as necessary. There's a resilience issue where polycentric systems are better at coping with unforeseen circumstances as opposed to a monocentric system, which is if this if a system has just one decision-making center and that place fails to do what they need to do, the whole system goes down, which is going to be a problem. And then the last one we talked about is emergent properties, is we might want to reach a goal, but we don't need a centralized planner to reach that goal. The goal can emerge from all of the kind of in complex interactions from the various constituent parts of the polycentric system. So that's kind of, I mean, obviously, you know those things because we wrote it together. I, I just recap them for our listeners. But is there a particular benefit of polycentricity that you think is especially important for coping with climate change? Yeah, I think actually the three we haven't talked as much about. The first three, I think, are really important, but the buy-in, because there are communities that really desperately care about environmental issues, and they will be able to move more quickly than other communities where there's more of a mix of the trade-offs between moving towards um, environmentally friendly approaches that are costly in other ways, whether it's in higher energy costs or, or limits on the kinds of activities you can do and so on. And by having this ability to, we can move even if we can't get everybody else on board yet, I think that's a really important one. But I think those latter three that you just laid out with the mutual learning through experimentation, because some will move quickly and will try different things, will put regulations in place. And we see that, you know, California and actually several states who've agreed to go along with the California rules and to be bound by them once they're in place in California things with regard to the environment and, and energy use and translating into more sources of energy, such as electric cars and other resources that are can be uh, sustained more readily. When you get those groups trying these things, we see what works, and all of a sudden it's not as dangerous to the rest of us. It's not as foreign to the rest of us. People kind of get used to it because they've seen others within their vision 
trying these things and and it seemed to work okay. Other things they'll try will fail miserably. Like you say, the advantage of it is if California does something that's too far too fast and they fall on their face, one of the things that's being you know debated in recent years is the elimination of gas hookups in homes. And this became a hot button issue because people like their gas ranges and they want to have that gas fireplace. And wood fireplaces are not really viable in an age of pollution as as much as maybe they once were because wood is a heavy carbon producer. And so as a result, people want that gas hookup. And if you can't build a new home with a gas hookup, then you're going to get a lot of pushback from your citizens. And so seeing what works and what may not work is a useful lesson for others who are thinking about these policies, but not prepared yet to make those first mover reactions. And so I think that those in environmental area can be really critical. Another one, for example, landfills. In the West, where there are wide open spaces that no one treads at all, um, it's a little bit different to talk about landfill and how we recycle and the costs of recycling, et cetera, than it is if you're in a heavy urban area where there simply is no land available for landfill and you're putting things onto barges and putting things into the oceans, for example. Those are very different circumstances where one can be in a well-managed landfill today. Uh, You can keep leaching and other things that were some of the real detriments to landfills contained now. And because you have plenty of cheap land Uh, you can have landfills, but that may not be viable in New York City. And so having this ability to have different approaches and not a one-size-fits-all, I think, is a real advantage, even in environmental things. So on this, we're going to do this policy, but over here, it's easier for us to maybe do something with cleaning up our water and things. And so we're going to focus more on that and we're willing to pay for that in terms of our taxes and and so on. And so I think those learning from the other and making the mistakes that one will make and, and the others then don't have to make quite the same mistakes or may try something slightly different uh, when they go, that leads to that notion of the kinds of orders that emerge across many states, across the entire nation, across international arenas, those emergent orders come from that ability to experiment and the learning from others and the robustness uh, that is created by having these different uh, decision points and some discretion over those decisions and some control for Uh, more localized populations to try and move the ball down the field in terms of the environmental policies that we do desire. We like living in a cleaner environment. it It is a major luxury good that the West 
has been able to advance in the last many decades in a way that some parts of the world are still struggling to be able to do that just because of the costs associated with some of the shifts that must be made. Yeah, and I think tying together kind of the experimentation and mutual learning thing with the resilience claim is failures are going to be inevitable, in, and especially when we're dealing with something as difficult as climate change. So I guess the choice is between do we want lots of small scale failures that we can learn from and fix quickly or large scale failures that are systemically catastrophic and that, you know, we have to pick up all of the pieces and try again. And so I would argue, and I think you agree with me, that I'd rather have a lot of small scale failures, learn from them quickly, fix them quickly, keep iterating over and over again, rather than, you know, knocking over the whole Jenga tower and then hoping, uh, you know, you can find the right pieces later to rebuild it. Yes, especially because the large failures, when we have these large scale failures, they often set back the policy agenda by, you know, sometimes decades. I mean, they they can be devastating if you make a huge mistake in trying to then try new things. Whereas if you do it in a more localized way, because it's more localized, you can often tweak it in a, another location or even that same location. You can make changes and put them in place and find, okay, this works quite a bit better if we do it this way and then keep moving the ball forward down the field. So I think just the scale of failure really makes a difference in terms of the political support for continuing to work in an area. You don't want your entire environmental agenda being short-circuited by a massive failure on one front. And we see we saw a little bit of this with regard to the gas shortages and increased gas prices in Europe this last year is countries that had moved very far down the field away from fossil fuels all of a sudden found they didn't have the capacity to manage when, in fact, supplies of what they did need were cut off. And as a result, you saw them going back to decisions that they had already made and reversing some of those decisions in order to just manage and not to have their population be cold during the winter months because of a lack of fuel shortage. Price increases are one issue, but people dying due to the cold is an entirely different one. And uh, so you don't want those kinds of things uh, happening. And as a result, you change your policies. And that is a lesson learned. So if we can do these all over the place, then people go, okay, we want to move here, but we need a plan B or we need some backup. We need a plan for how fast we can get there and what happens in contingency circumstances if certain things change that we've been assuming. And so, again, lots of experiments let you see lots of different options with regard to that. So in terms of this conversation about climate change and a polycentric approach to climate change, one thing that I think is often, I guess, maybe in pop culture or media or whatever, 
people don't usually focus on what climate change really means. And I think this is what we really like we as a society really need to focus on is the complexity of climate change. Climate change is not just one problem. It's a multitude of problems that are overlapping and nested in, within one another. And so like the causes of climate change, there's many, many of them like burning fossil fuels. Yes, obviously that's a huge contributor, but what does that really mean? Well, that's transportation, that's energy production, but transportation in a whole bunch of different ways and energy production in a whole bunch of different ways. Then if you throw in agriculture, like methane as a contributor to climate change, like uh, you know, production of meat, that's a whole different thing. What do we do with that? And then the effects of climate change are very complex, overlapping and nested. So sea level rise is a huge issue. Sea level acidification is a whole nother issue that has different properties. You have in some places are going to be drier. Some places are going to receive more rainfall. And so there's just so many things going on at once. When we talk about climate change, it's this huge, complex social problem. That's why I think it's so important when we're talking about polycentricity, especially this kind of experimentation and mutual learning, is we need so many different types of knowledge and so many different types of approaches going on simultaneously to even address the causes and effects of climate change. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or follow up with that. Yeah, and I think that's why the sort of emergent properties come out of this polycentric is all of those different kinds of expertise are needed, but no single group or person or policymaker can possibly hold all of those. And so they're going to be very dependent on others coming in and assisting them on that. And by having different policymakers and different experts and different perspectives that you get by all of these different countries trying different things and all of these different states trying different things, different civil groups, uh, civic groups trying different things and businesses trying new technologies, et cetera, there are emerging out of all of that are going to be great ideas that we cannot even imagine in advance. We couldn't plan for it. They're just going to be on the stage at some point and we're going to go, wow, I didn't know that we could do that and be amazed by it. And that has been the history of energy use, for example, and environmental impacts. We have improved on these fronts. We Our energy use is a smaller and smaller part of our overall economic capacity, especially in the West. And part of the reason why is we've gone to more efficient sources of energy than we once had. I mean, as I said, we used to burn wood. You know, it's a, it's a high-cost energy system. And it's going to have lots of negative consequences that go with it. And as we've moved with technology and developed this kind of thing, that knowledge then has allowed us to then have all sorts of other economic gains, all sorts of other things that we can do that we're not dedicating to finding things to eat during the day and finding things and ways of preparing them and so on. And so I think that this is one of those circumstances where the more we're open to 
different approaches as opposed to trying to consolidate on a single policy for the world, for example. I think innovation and new technologies and the desire that people have to try and solve these very critical problems will result in that competitive arena in a better set of outcomes than trying to figure out what it is in advance and then trying to figure out how we're going to apply that all over the world. And I think that was really Lynn Ostrom's bottom line on this, is it wasn't that she wouldn't want climate change policy that could create improved climate and and regulation in this area. It was she didn't think that was viable that there was no mechanism, there was no institutional arrangement that could actually carry that out. And as a result, how can we move towards improvement in those areas? And the answer to that is in lots of different ways, some of which are not going to work, but a whole lot of them will work. And some will work better than others, and hopefully we'll adopt some of the better ones over the lesser ones. But we're going to all have to make trade-offs in the same way that, like in Europe, in Germany, they had to make trade-offs with regard to decisions that they had already made on regulating themselves. But when you need to have people with heating for the winter, you're going to have to make concessions at that point in time. And and that's, I think, the kind of trade-offs that people make in every single economy, every single life, and across so many different arenas. And so I I really like the idea of diversity and the kind of innovation and expertise that will emerge out of many voices allowed to speak and allowed to act in these different polycentric settings. Yeah, and it- this discussion reminds me of kind of a distinction between simple systems or complex systems. And I think we could even say like simple problems and complex problems. And so kind of a monocentric, top-down, bureaucratic approach may be actually really efficient and not really bad for solving simple problems. Like if we just have a simple output target, like we have to paint 15 houses today. You can have one central guy make the plan and we do it in... I mean, that doesn't require much, but like complex problems, like let's say we need to orchestrate systems of production so that people get what they want, like in a market, like a market is a complex system. So we could go on a whole separate direction talking about, you know, economic calculation and the market process, how that is a complex problem, but that we have feedback mechanisms and the whole system of the market process allows this complex problem to be resolved. I think we can also think of climate change is a complex problem and it's a polycentric system that is most adept at addressing a complex problem just because of the complexity like there is there's no simple output target there's so much uncertainty there are so many moving parts that making a yeah top down centralized plan is infeasible on you know 100 different margins yeah, let alone we can't get people to agree to it. But then again, even if everyone did agree, how do we even know that we're solving the problems that need to be solved? Do we, we don't even know the correct means. Do we even know the correct ends? It's hard to say. Well, and, and that's like in our paper, 
on this looking at polycentricity, one of the points was a lot of the gains that have been made over the last several years to improve the U.S. performance on climate change, despite a, a president and an administration that was not on board with the overall global agreements on this, the Paris Agreement, for example. One of the arguments we made was the substitution of gas, natural gas, for other energy sources had improved. That's nothing to do with any of these agreements. It may have other impacts. Fracking and other things have created other concerns uh, that people have. And in certain communities, that has also become something that they want to Let's consider the trade-offs. Let's consider the costs of this. But we know for a fact that because natural gas is so much cleaner in the way that it creates that energy there in a relatively low-cost way, it has created improvement without having to get agreement from everybody about moving to natural gas over this. The market created this opportunity, new technologies created an opportunity here, and it got delivered to people in a, in a price that made it more valuable to them relative to what they had in the past. And as, as a result, they've, they've opted for it, and overall climate has improved. Again, that's one where it's a different source of why the improvement occurred had very little to do with the policies. Now, you could put policies in place that would exacerbate the shift to natural gas or impede it by like regulating fracking and other things that have permitted it to become more cost effective. And so policy can often get in the way, but a lot of these things will occur because our incentives are. We want to live in a world with cheap energy and a clean environment. Now, how do we get the right mix of those two things? Because we have benefited mightily from both of those things. So how do we get them? Well, private sector has come up with ideas, public actions and different policies have come up with ideas. And that, I think, is that meta meta polycentric or metacentric uh, kind of logic that comes into play here, which would be very hard for any single policymaker, any single country to try and replicate. I just don't think the structure or the incentives or, or the capacity or knowledge are there to make that happen. But it happens within a market. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And going back to your example of, say, like the the when the United States was out of the Paris Agreement for those four or so years, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think, because thinking from the, the meta-polycentric perspective, markets were doing things, they were finding not only more efficient ways of burning fossil fuels, but many alternatives of fossil fuels. So in the past six or seven years, a bunch of renewable energy sources have become like exponentially cheaper than they used to be. It's been kind of shocking to see how quickly, say, things like wind and solar have become more cost effective, uh, which is great. And I think that's due largely to markets. But then we also had on the policy front, even though the federal government had backed out, you had a whole bunch of different states that they still chose to abide by the precepts of the Paris Agreement. And then even in states that didn't do that, you had a bunch of cities or counties who chose to abide by the precepts of the Paris Agreement. So 
because of the polycentric arrangement of government itself in the United States, even though the federal government had backed out, it was something like, you know, roughly a half of the U.S. population was still under the Paris Agreement in some way or another. Right. They were governed by it because they chose states to live in that were on board with it, even though the national government, that administration was not. And and that, I think, speaks volumes to the advantage of a polycentric system over a unitary system or a centralized system. The centralized system could be better or it could be much worse in terms of your particular policy preferences. And we saw that take place. But because of federalism and polycentrism in the United States, those states that thought that it was an abomination that Trump should leave the Paris Agreement were able to continue to be bound by the Paris Agreement, even though the United States had not signed on. And that's the that's the advantage, I think, of that approach. Yeah, exactly. And then even there, too, like we talk about markets and policy. There was also civil society. We had a bunch of different groups. I think one of the maybe most influential parts of this metapolycentric governance structure with civil societies is the ability to persuade people to change their change their preferences, to see things I mean, maybe in more technical terms, like a, a, a social entrepreneurs or ideological entrepreneurs, they're able to, through their advocacy or those type of things, they can actually help people change the way that they behave. So I, I know a lot of people may not be vegetarians or vegans by any means, but they're actually more conscious of how much meat they eat. And that consciousness didn't just come from anywhere. It's usually from civil society groups like doing PSA kind of things or um, different things like that. And we could go on and on about different kinds of civil society groups. But yeah, these interactions between the civil society groups influences what people buy in the market. It influences what kind of representatives that people vote for and, you know, all of that. And I think we've always seen that. I mean, you were from the West and the Utah area, so you are familiar with a lot of in the olden times, before a lot of the current ways of dealing with the environment, cleaning up parks and things, cleaning up garbage along rivers, etc. Civic groups have always been involved in these kinds of community projects. You still see that happening where, yes, there's someone who's supposed to keep these things clean in some, in some job that's out there but they're not going to necessarily get to your part of the world or your river or your park as quickly as you might want. So people just come together. They may come together with a civic organization in an organized way, or they may just come together as a neighborhood and say, we're going to on Saturday go down and take our trash bags and pick up stuff along the river or along the highway and there've always been those efforts that would very much be in keeping with the sort of Ostrom logic of self-governing in this voluntary way to do what is a social problem to solve what is a social problem through their own actions uh, not just to bind everyone else or to create a law 
and think that because we have a law that says you're not supposed to litter, people won't litter. And so I think that these other components of the system that help in enforcement and education and sort of transmission often lead the way in terms of what is possible. So frequently we do see groups like Nature Conservancy or uh, Sierra Club and other environmental groups who come up with ideas that then become part of legal action and regulations that a city or a community or a state might adopt. But frequently, there are programs that started by some group of people who cared about it and were willing to volunteer their time and resources to actually carry it out and demonstrate that it was viable to do that. So we've been talking for a while about climate change in terms of polycentricity. Kind of as my final question, I want to change directions just a little bit and look at climate change from a different perspective using public choice theory. And you're an expert in public choice theory. You've served as the president of the Public Choice Society. I'm wondering in terms of climate change, uh, what do you think are the most important insights from public choice theory that people should be aware of? Yeah, well, public choice theory warns us that interests are interests wherever they be, whether it's in government or it's in the economy or it's in the private, uh, our private lives, wherever you are, what you want and what you think is the important outcome is going to drive your your actions to some extent. Now, your actions may be very magnanimous. Your interests may be very magnanimous. Or you may have fairly narrow economic interests. And one of the things we see in the environmental area is the use of subsidies. And all of this has led to sort of the rise of an entire industry of people in Washington, D.C., seeking more and more subsidies and more and more help from government or regulations that will assist their industry and have become economically advantageous to them. This is good at moving people in that direction. So subsidies for electric cars, you know, it's very handy to have it, but many people would argue, well, we're subsidizing you know, rich people, which because that's who's buying electric cars because they're $50,000 or so. And it's not really viable for a low-income person to get that $7,500 tax advantage or a company that is going to put up a wind farm or a solar farm or something of this sort by subsidizing many of these companies, again, it's a planning type of arrangement. It's industrial policy where you're picking winners and you're picking losers. And while that can benefit, certainly in an industry that needs some investment at a critical time, it also quickly can become not a viable strategy because now they're doing it for the subsidies as opposed to doing it just to create a new and innovative type of good. So it's very hard to get out of those subsidies, to get out of the special interests and the special treatment once that industry is on its own or could be viable. 
Uh, it's very hard for government to extract itself. And as a result, you may not get newer innovations that would replace some of these mid-range strategies and that have been subsidized. And so we see that, for example, when um, railroads were being subsidized uh, because they had been regulated and they had access to government and they could help set the rates, they really dragged out the possibility of trucks that were more viable, and especially in the age of containers, much more viable environmentally and economically friendly way of transporting than the railroads had been. But because railroads had had the government with their thumb on the scale in favor of the railroads and regulating the railroads, it became much, much harder for other competitors to innovate in that way. And I think the same kind of thing could be happening in environmental where big companies can recognize, well, if we invest in this kind of industry, we will get the benefit of government subsidies or tax breaks of a certain sort, and they are going to fight very hard to keep all of those regardless of whether or not it makes sense to continue to subsidize and whether or not they're product or or their new form of energy or or new environmental technique would has sustainability in a market and so it's hard to get out of them once you're in that's the public choice thing once you come to washington it's really hard to get innovation and change and most of the major innovation that we've had over the years has happened outside of any of these kind of protected industries or invested industries. It's happened despite those frequently because government just moves too slowly. Politics just moves too slowly to be truly innovative. And so frequently those things get in the way of innovation. Yeah. And so if I reinterpret what you were just talking about, I heard kind of two two major takeaways from the public choice perspective. One is that this rent seeking that you've been talking about, like different groups coming to the government for special favors, usually subsidies, but not necessarily subsidies, some sort of favor. That process is socially wasteful because people are expending resources to get resources. They're, I guess, in other words, like you're spending money to get an amount of the same pie rather than making the pie bigger. And so in that sense, even if the subsidies are going to something that seems good, it's still socially wasteful because we could be, well, it's even interesting too, because we subsidize both the production of fossil fuels and subsidize renewable energy. So we're spending twice the money to negate the outcomes. Yes. And another good example is the smoking industry, where we were continued to subsidize tobacco farmers to grow more tobacco in the agriculture sector at the same time we were spending billions on cancer prevention and health costs and other things in the health arena. It's government attacking government in terms of the policies. But it speaks to once you're in place, it's almost impossible to get rid of. So while today, if you put forward, we should subsidize tobacco farmers, it probably wouldn't get a lot of positive reinforcement. 
but it went into place a long time ago and that becomes the constituency. That's really the rent-seeking argument is even when it no longer makes sense, it's very hard to extract yourself politically once you've put some of these policies in place and they continue to drag on the system. Yeah. So yeah, the first of the rent-seeking is socially wasteful, even if it seems like it's good. And then the second thing I was kind of hearing you say is good intentions or seemingly good intentions can often lead to unintentionally bad outcomes. And so I think this is uh, what we see in the, like Bruce Yandel's work on bootleggers and Baptists is you can have a legitimate claim that, hey, we do need to do something about climate change or environmental things or whatever we want to talk about. There may be some moral justification. That's the quote unquote Baptist side. But then there's also you can use that moral argument for your own benefit at the expense of others. And so that's the Baptist or the bootlegger side is even though there may be good intentions at the basis of many of these policies, the way that the political process actually unfolds when we think of policymakers as real people who are influenced by incentives, you have special interests who are influenced by different incentives. We can once, you know, once the sausage is made, the sausage is not very pretty because of everything that went into it. Someone benefits from it. And uh, and we see that. So we we see the argument being made that you can't make this change because we've invested all of this because you told us we needed to do this. And so now you owe us, in essence, is often the lobbyist argument. And so we keep reinvesting. So that bootlegger is there making the case that this is an important thing to do, but I'll need a subsidy to do it. That's what's happening, I think, in a lot of sectors of the environmental policy area, which, again, may be important at a given point, but that means the planner knows what that point is to do the investment that's going to be effective and when to remove it or when we can phase it down and and move on and, and that industry survive on its own. And if it's not, then it is socially wasteful to be doing it this way. And it picks particular companies that win and others that do not get these things. So it's an uneven playing field. And it's the same kind of argument that many people make regarding, you know, tariffs and other issues in the trade area that, oh, well, they invest in their companies, so we have to put tariffs on ours because we can't compete. Who does a tariff hurt? It helps those jobs, but at the expense of all of these other jobs and at the expense of the consumer paying more for it. And so public choice really tries to get you to look at all sides of that equation and to think about what would a citizen do if they thought about both sides of it, not just the argument that's often being made, which is only on one side of the equation and not the trade-offs or costs uh, that come with it. And just so we don't uh, end on a you know pessimistic or sour note here, I think this is why polycentricity, with a proper understanding of public choice in terms of how politics actually works, I think this is, to go back to our polycentricity discussion, I think this is why polycentricity is so important because we do have, you know, that's just, a fact of life. There are special interests that try to use the coercive power of the state to benefit themselves at the expense of others. 
But if we have checks, balances, and backstops in the system, which is a polycentric system, polycentric systems have checks, balances, and backstops, at least we may not be able to get rid of those public choice elements, but at least we can mitigate them on a lot of different margins. Absolutely. It is the notion of competition. And what polycentricity brings us is different competing entities. They can cooperate, but they also are different and thus compete at some level in terms of the knowledge that they're producing, in terms of the types of policies they're producing. And it is that, that diversity, that really is the gain that allows us to be able to say, this isn't working because we see over here they're not doing that and they're doing better, even though they're not doing that. And if you only have one size fits all, that knowledge that emerges out of that will not emerge as quickly and we will make bigger mistakes. And with public choice, one policymaker makes it easier for the lobbyists and others. It's lower cost to go to Washington, D.C., than it is to go to all of these different diverse communities around the United States. And so many times the biggest bootleggers want to move the policy to the highest level they possibly can so they can focus their attention as lobbyists and as people trying to shape how that policy is going to be made. People think, well, they don't want it at the national level, but they do because that's one place they have to make the case. And if they can make it there, now they've solved it across all of them. Polycentricity says, no, let's try different things. And it will make it more costly for those lobbyists and others who try to capture the system for their own benefit. That is going to be a much more difficult and costly thing to capture. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And with that, thank you, Bobby, so much for the conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. Hopefully you have too. Me too. Always love talking to you. And always love talking about polycentricity and so happy to be able to uh, work with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.